action. Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. These are big movies think about big men in tights. You should have got us. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? We like movies! Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl here with Matt Knutson, and this is We Like Movies, your semi-slash-tri-slash-quad-monthly podcast where we go everywhere from deep dives to uh, present-day films. I'm coming to you from my quarantine bunker here in Seattle. Matt is on the other line uh, from beautiful Los Angeles, California. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited to be uh, getting back into AFI territory. It's been many, many months since we've done this. I think the last time we talked AFI was uh, American Graffiti, maybe back in November. Does that sound right? Oh, shit. I, I don't. Is that the last one we did? That doesn't even seem right. It doesn't seem right, but I think it is right. We got deep into 99 stuff. We got into Oscar stuff. There's just been so many things happening in the world over the last six months or so uh, that we just sort of like we lost sight of our AFI mission. But we're back and we're going to jam through a few of these. And, you know, maybe we can even make it to the halfway point in the next couple of months. I mean, I feel like if we're being quarantined here, you can knock a, f- a lot of these off the list, right? We're, we're, we're edging closer and closer to the halfway point. This is number 61, I believe, Sullivan's Travels. Despite the fact that we're both working stiffs now, during quarantine, there's nothing but time, baby. So uh, yeah, we should should be knocking these off. Sullivan's Travels at 61. Preston Sturgis, 1941 film. Uh, It's not a movie I'd ever seen before, Matt. Yeah, it's new to the list this time out. It was not on the original 1997 list. I had seen it back, I think I watched it back when the 10th anniversary list came out about 13 years ago, but I don't think I'd seen it since then. And I've, I've watched it twice in the last month, not necessarily because I love it, but just because it's it's given me a lot to think about and I wanted to be ready for this episode. And we had a couple false starts as well. So I wanted to refresh and, and make sure I was uh, I was up to date with it. Preston Sturgis is a guy who he's a little bit of a blind spot for me. He's very, very important to a lot of important filmmakers, but he's never been particularly important to me. Uh, I've seen a couple of his films, this one, The Lady Eve and uh, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek. I'm not super educated with his films or, or, or even many of the great screwball comedies of the 40s. I, I, it's a little bit of a blind spot for me, to be perfectly honest. Matt, you mentioned that he is an important filmmaker for a lot of filmmakers out there. Will you sort of provide a little context, maybe explain why that is the case? He's, he's a writer's writer, and maybe he's even a writer's filmmaker. So you hear, you know, you often hear guys like Aaron Sorkin talk about the importance of Preston Sturgis's writing, particularly his way with dialogue. Just before we started recording, I was watching an interview with John Lasseter where he was talking about how the scene in this film where the inmates watch a Pluto cartoon was like the scene that made him realize he wanted to be an animator. Like that he wanted Mm -hmm. to go into animation and he wanted to entertain people with that. So just, you know, people who are comedically minded, people who are really into dialogue, people who are really into the rhythm of words and want to hone the ear and want to celebrate 
comedy as maybe an underappreciated fundamental component of important filmmaking tend to really, really champion this film and the entire Sturgis oeuvre. Like, if there is a Mount Rushmore of screenwriters, I think Sturgis has probably got to be on it. And as a result of that, I probably owe it to myself to do a little bit of a deeper dive on Sturgis, maybe during this quarantine, maybe now is my chance, maybe now is my opportunity, because there's some really interesting things going on in this film. And revisiting this and revisiting Duck Soup, which we're going to talk about here uh, in a couple weeks, made me realize how pleasurable, great dialogue delivered very quickly by super savvy performers can be. You mentioned Mount Rushmore of screenwriters. I mean, that seems kind of crazy to me, but I'm not a appreciator of, of 1940s screwball comedy, so it's it's hard for me to make judgment on that. But is that claim more symbolic than anything, that he was one of the first writer-directors and maybe the first writer's-director, as you, as you mentioned, as opposed to actual sort of qualitative judgment on his on his work there is a clear personality in his films his style of dialogue you can you can spot it from a mile away you can hear it from a mile away he's he's been uh, imitated ad nauseum by a lot like many many lesser talents this is his only film on the afi top 10 uh, top 100 list and as i said it was not on the original list so maybe he is a little more obscure in the pantheon of, of American writer-directors. Maybe he has sort of like fallen into a category where it's only guys like like Sorkin or Patty Chayefsky, who, or John Lasseter for that matter, continue to champion him and continue to remind us that we shouldn't forget about his films. This one seems right for a list like this, and it especially seems right for right now. Like a lot of the themes in this really resonated for me. Being back in Los Angeles and you know, walking home from work every night and, and passing lots of tent cities. And this is an imperfect movie, but I do think that what it, whatever it is, 80 years later, there's still a lot of mm-hmm. stuff here that, that really resonates and is quite uh, quite sophisticated from a thematic standpoint. Now it's like it's a tonally wildly inconsistent film, which I think is one of its flaws. It, it can't stay on one tone for too long before it like completely veers to the other side of the road. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was Sturgis's intention. It's a little bit of a schizophrenic film, I would say. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, but going back, just just the mere you know fact that this movie wasn't on the original top 100 list and then entered makes you. I mean, it just goes back to what I've been saying the whole time, which is this thing's rigged, right? <laughs> it's not like there was a surge of Preston Sturgis fame between the first and second list. So, maybe I mean, maybe it was the Coen brothers. Maybe maybe we can maybe we thank the Coen brothers for it. Th- those other guys who obviously are huge Sullivan's travel I'm sorry, huge Preston Sturgis fans and you need to yeah. look no further than the fact that they named one the of brother, their yeah. most successful films. I don't necessarily want to say one of their best films, but certainly one of their most high-profile films starring a really really big movie star. They ripped the title off from the film within the film here. Yeah, I'm just guessing people saw the list and was like, "Why why is Preston Sturgis not uh, represented and then they made amends by putting him on uh on the next one. Yeah, so. and I and I never I never want to endorse gamifying the system, but I you know, sometimes I do feel like, yeah, I mean, you know, we should be rep- if this is an American list that's supposed to represent the entire cross section, 100 plus years of American cinema, Preston Sturges probably should be represented, but we'll we'll get more into that when we talk about whether this deserves to be on the list at the end. I have issues on the representation of comedies on this list, but I will save that for our next 
AFI episode. Yeah, it is. It is interesting to be doing two two comedies in a row here. That's that's pretty. There's not a lot of comedies on this list, so it's weird to have two two right next to each other. All right, so Matt, this movie is let's say the main theme of this film is the realization that comedy, something that's not outwardly meant to be poignant or pretentious, is just as worthy as any sort of deeply profound symbolic piece of art would you say that is the main theme of this film i do i agree it's definitely one of the main themes of the film and that's definitely a sentiment that i believe without putting words in your mouth is near and dear to your heart right oh yeah absolutely you're a flag waver for the comedy and as you alluded to before it it is a little bit disconcerting how how rarely comedy is represented on a list like this or even just the conversation about the great great examples of cinema i mean comedy doesn't come up as often as it should i'm going to read the opening subtitle of the film here to the memory of those who made us laugh the motley mountebanks the clowns the buffoons in all times and in all nations whose efforts have lightened our burden a little this picture is affectionately dedicated yeah it, it would it would feel it would feel a little weird if judd apatow put a bumper like that at the front of of one of his you know at the front <laughs> of train wreck or something right i mean this is definitely a uh art artifact of a bygone era yeah it, w- it would be really weird if you thank the mountebanks every night before I go to bed. I thank thank the mountebanks for for everything they've done for me. <laughs> All right, you open the you open the floodgate here. What the hell is a mountebank? I don't know. I'm gonna look it up right now. <laughs> okay. So yeah, the film purports to be a comedy, but it is it is a comedy about the unfortunate members of society. Like it's a movie about a guy who is is so fortunate and has been so successful doing something he deems to be trivial that he decides he wants to get out there on the road and rub shoulders with the quote-unquote real people, or at least the less yeah. fortunate members of society, as a way of being able to um, represent their plight through cinema, which is his uh, which is his medium. He is a very successful comedic filmmaker. So in, in that regard, there could be something sort of autobiographical going on here. Yeah, a mountebank's a, a charlatan, someone who deceives others. Okay. So take with that what you will. But, I mean, don't you think, was it on purpose? I assume it had to be that... The main conceit of this movie, that sort of superfluous, fun, goofy comedies are just as worthwhile as profound dramas or whatever, is undermined by the film itself. Interesting. Go deeper on that. This movie delves into more profound, real-life themes in a way that sort of pushes back at the idea that you know you don't need to have that for a really good movie. Yeah, I mean, something that I like about this film, even though I, I consider it to be sort of like tonally, like I mentioned, all over the road, uh, it does seem like it has something on its mind. And I think I prefer it when comedies have something on their mind. You know, like I, I kind of am a little more into the satirical stuff because it seems like there's something ideologically going on beneath the surface. As a, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I, enjoy a, um, I enjoy a Three Stooges short as much as the next guy. Or even a Pluto cartoon, as is <laughs> sure. as is utilized in a very wow. famous sequence in this you movie. You are stuck in the 1930s right uh, now. <laughs> I'm all over the road. I appreciate the fact that this movie is a comedy, but it's not just willing to rest on its laurels. But I take your I take your meaning in that the movie is saying like, hey, can't we all just rally around something that's sort of mindless and fun and brings pleasure, and it doesn't necessarily always need to be about 
capital S something, and yet this mm-hmm. movie is about capital S something, <laughs> and then it yeah, comes all the way around. It's like, hey, movies don't need to be about something. They can just be pleasurable. Yeah. That's what you're getting at? The hypocrisy of that? I, I presume that that is intentional irony of some kind, but I, I, I kind of prefer to look at this as a bit of a meta commentary on Preston Sturgis embracing the idea that he doesn't need to grow into sort of higher profundity as his career went on. However, I haven't seen the rest of his film so I don't know how true that is if he was struggling with the idea that he's just making dumb comedies and if he thought that he had a higher calling or something but and if this movie was his way of embracing just what he had done previously and what he would do in the future or it's a, you know an opportunity for him to sort of have it both ways right to, sure. kind, of, to kind of yeah, gesture exactly. towards the more profound but then always be able to sort of like fall back on I, I I've only like I said I've only seen a couple of his, of his films but what what I know of him is that he didn't really make that many disposable comedies you know he always had something on his mind he was a smart guy he had had ideas and his stuff was just always very very character driven but also just very, very original. I mean, this movie is just, a it's very bizarre, but it's also kind of refreshingly original. To see a movie made yeah. in 1941, you're like, wow, this movie is all over the place, but it's throwing things at me I wasn't expecting to see. There are parts in this movie where I just, I wasn't exactly clear on what he was trying to say, and maybe he was trying to leave parts of it vague, but... You know, there's a really good short monologue by his his butler early on in the movie about the sort of devastation that is poverty and that you don't really, you say you want to get to know it, but you don't really want to get to know it. It's different than what you think. But then he goes on to, you know, <laughs> be part of the chain gang. And I don't know what the greater message is at points because he kind of tries, like you said, to have it both ways. It takes a long time to get there, but the main character, titular Traveler keeps trying and trying over and over and over to live this more, you know, to have this real experience with the real people. And he can never really get there. And at one point he ends up hitchhiking and falling asleep and he ends up right back where he started. So there's this, there there seems to be this sort of like futility of him continuing to try to get out there, get out there, get out there, and then sort of stops thinking about it or stops trying. All of a sudden he gets wrapped over the head, thrown onto a train, and then he actually gets tossed into the exact kind of experience he was trying his hardest to get into it's only once he stops trying that he manages to find himself smack dab in the middle of everything he was talking about achieving and and he gets he actually gets arrested and gets put on a real chain gang and then he finally gets to have that experience i mean the experience that comes about halfway through the film where he and the veronica light character who's just called the girl she has no name she Mm -hmm. just referred to as the girl they go and they live in one of these tent cities like they live amongst amongst the homeless but they can escape anytime they want to. There comes a point where they finally just are over it and they they go back to his beautiful mansion in Beverly Hills. So in that regard, that is is sort of an illegitimate experience. That's yeah, not. It's not exactly. real. He has to have. In order to have the real experience later, it needs to be sort of out of his. It needs to be beyond his control. I guess I'll skip forward because I, then I want to move back. But what what would you say our main character learns by the end of this movie? I mean, besides making people laugh is the greatest gift of all. <laughs> How does that really coincide with the the? poverty tourism that he that he goes through yeah i mean because it's, it's not like he comes back and, uh he doesn't come back to sell all of his belongings and give it to them to the less fortunate right no he, he doesn't quit his job and you know start a nonprofit or anything no but he comes back and his his realization is that he needs to use his powers for good right he needs to not he, he needs to appreciate what he has and the power that he has and he needs to use that power in order to make people laugh and make people happy right as sure. opposed to like continually thinking that that's 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 beneath him that that he's too good for or whatever. No, he's not too good for it. Like that's just as legitimate as 
you know, Shakespeare or whatever. If you lead people to an experience, regardless of the subject matter, regardless if it's laughing or crying, then you have done a service to the audience. The, the thing that I find just a little bit icky about all this is that this guy has this experience. He sees the real world. He's he's in, you know he's involved in the in the poverty stricken life of so many Americans. And his big takeaway is you know let's make more comedies so they can forget about their shitty lives for <laughs> an hour and a half, right? Instead of like let's do something. It depends on when you listen to this, but you know there is that Imagine video from all the celebrities during quarantine, okay. right? Okay. And it's like it, it feels a little similar to that. It's like oh. I'll give all the poor suffering people out there just a little a little break from their reality with this sort of meaningless trifle instead of doing something actually tangible like giving away money or or helping people's lives. So that that's probably not the whole <laughs> point of this movie. Right. But. Well, I mean, he there's something specific to him. He, you, you know, you never actually necessarily see it in practice, but you're led to believe in the opening scene of the film that he is a very successful filmmaker who has a very big audience and has marshaled a lot of forces. Like, there's all these producers following him around for the entire film because he clearly is making them a lot of money and he's been very successful and they they kind of need him. Whatever his special sauce is, people want it. People want access to it. And he has the ability to to reach a really wide audience. And you get the impression he's, he's pretty good at this. So sure, anybody with money can give money away. And that's great. And that's charitable. And that's noble. But how about somebody who has a very specific gift use that gift for good. Yeah. No, no. I I I that can't be a bad thing. His personal journey, I think, tracks and makes sense and is 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 not a bad lesson to learn. But for how much time is spent among the poor and about the poor in this movie, I don't think it really has much to say about the poverty stricken in this country, right? Yeah, I think this movie definitely is more interested in making commentary on comedy or the power of comedy or the importance of comedy that it necessarily is about income inequality or something like that like it's not <laughs> sure, it's not sure. explicitly a movie about the poor even though he keeps attempting to be a quote-unquote hobo for the entire film <laughs> which is <laughs> yeah, which is yeah. kind of there's also something charming about that like five o'clock shadow and the uh, bindle stiff or the bindle stick there's something yeah. very just quaint about that considering all the things that I've, I mean, just walking from my house to Ralph's this morning, um, saw a lot of homeless people doing uh, a lot of different things on the sidewalk in Koreatown. And uh, I'll tell you what, none of them were walking around with a with a bindle stiff, that's for sure. No, those old tiny hobos aren't, don't really exist. <laughs> no, none of them were eating out of a uh, out of a can of beans or anything like that. They were <laughs> availing themselves of other of other activities that I, I, I can't talk about in, in mixed company. But, so there is something that's a little bit cute and kind of quaint about that. Okay, so there's a centerpiece scene in this movie where he and Veronica Lake go and live amongst the poor. And how did you feel about that? I mean, that 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 scene apparently didn't sit well with the censors at the time. Like this, I think this film actually didn't pass the censorship board. You know, the the Hayes Code or whatever they were using at the time. The first couple times they screened it because it was just too raw, too real, like too unpleasant for audiences in 1941. Yeah, it's hard to transport yourselves back to then. The the code stuff is 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 weird. I was reading Wikipedia that the use of the term bum wasn't going to pass <laughs> right. British censors, which was odd to me. And then that you know they didn't want to export this film overseas because of the chain gang stuff and. It, 
and and they didn't initially, I guess, uh, because they didn't want to see hard labor uh, of some kind. It was, it was kind of confusing. But the takeaway I had just reading the Wikipedia stuff was more propaganda-ish. They didn't want to show what America was really like, okay. I guess. Okay. So so going back to your point, yeah, the rawness of it. I'm not sure if it was just the shock factor, but more of how it portrayed our country. At, at one point, at the end of the sequence, uh, Joel McRae and Veronica Lake go and they're, I guess they're scrounging around in garbage cans or whatever, and they open, they, they take the lid off one of these garbage cans, and then that's sort of like the last straw. How did you read that? Like, I watched the scene twice, and I couldn't figure out exactly. I guess you're just led to believe there's something horrible in, the, in that garbage can that finally pushes them over the edge and makes them run back to... Uh, you know, to air conditioning. Yeah, my read was that, yeah, it was just sort of the last straw. I was like, we're really going to search in this garbage can for sustenance again? Mm-hmm. Let's get the fuck out of here. Yeah, it's strange. We haven't even really talked about it yet. At the center of this movie is this really goofy sort of romantic comedy existing <laughs> in the middle of all this. Like, this movie is so bizarre. Like, it's just such a strange yeah. film. There's there's a whole other romantic comedy that you could completely just pick it up and drop it in a in a completely different context. And it would probably still work yeah. because Joel McRae and Veronica Lake have a lot of chemistry, although they apparently did not get along on the set of this movie. Apparently nobody liked Veronica Lake. I think that's why she wasn't a bigger movie star, because apparently she was quite difficult to work with. Well, and she was also six, seven months Very pregnant, pregnant during the shoot. Right? Yeah. So may have been a little bit moody <laughs> as you know as you would expect for someone six months pregnant but yeah you're right like even talking about the uh you know the diner scene the meat cute stuff like yeah. that's yeah that's out of a screwball comedy that's not not really thematically uh, connected to everything else that's going on it's not it almost feels like a studio note it's, it's actually sort of somewhat in line with the opening the very famous opening sequence where joel mccray's character is talking to the studio heads and he's like i want this picture to be a commentary on modern conditions stark realism the problems that confront the average man. But with a little six. A little, but I don't want to stress it. I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little six. With a little sex in it. How about a nice musical? How can you talk about musicals at a time like this with the world committing suicide, with corpses piling up in the street, with grim death gargling at you from every corner, with people slaughtered like sheep? Maybe they'd like to forget that. Then why do they hold this one over for a fifth week at the music hall? For the ushers? It died in Pittsburgh. Like a dog. What do they know in Pittsburgh? They know what they like. If they know what they like, they wouldn't live in Pittsburgh. That's no argument. If you panted the public, you'd still be in the horse age. You think we're not? Look at Hopalong Cash. You look at them. We'd still be making keystone chases, bathing beauties, custard pie. And a fortune. Fortune. Of course, I'm just a minor employee here, Mr. LeBrand. He's starting that one again. I wanted to make you something outstanding. Something you could be proud of. Something that would realize the potentialities of film as the sociological and artistic medium that it is, with a little sex in it. Something like Something that. like Capra. I know. What's the matter with Capra? Look. You want to make your brother run out though? Yes. Now, wait a minute. Then go ahead and make it. What you're getting, I can't afford to argue with you. That's a fine way to start a man out on a million-dollar production. You want it, you've got it. I can take it in the chin. I've taken it before. Not from me, you haven't. Not from you, Sully, that's true. Not with pictures like So Long, Sarong, Hey, Hey, and the Halo, Ants and your plants of 1939, but they weren't about traps and lockouts, sweatshops, people eating garbage in alleys and living in piano boxes and ash cans and... And Floyd. They're about nice... Clean young people who fell in love with laughter and music and legs. Now take that scene and hey, hey, in the head. But you don't realize conditions have changed. There isn't any work. There isn't any food. These are troublous times. What do you know about trouble? 
What do I know about trouble? Yes, what do you know about trouble? What do you mean, what do I know about trouble? Just what I'm saying. You want to make a picture about garbage cans. What do you know about garbage cans? When did you eat your last meal out of one? Well, what's that got to do with it? He's asking you. You want to make an epic about misery. You want to show hungry people sleeping in doorways. The newspapers around them. You want to grind 10,000 feet of hard luck. And all I'm asking you is, what do you know about hard luck? Yes. <laughs> and that's kind of what the Veronica Lake character, she feels very sort of, I mean, she's great. Don't get me wrong. Veronica Lake is incredible on screen. She just has, a, just a, there's just a presence about her. She and Joel, I mean, she speaks Sturgis's dialogue very well. I mean, she looks like a movie star. Like, she, there's just something about her. And she and Joel McRae crackle together. But it also feels like, what is she doing in this movie? I'd, the most important revelations Joel McRae's character comes to don't really involve her, right? She, she no, ultimately no. ends up becoming something he can run back to. You know, he can escape the chain gang, turn himself in, and, and return to at the end so that we can have a nice, tidy, happy ending with her. Yeah, I mean, I guess the idea that... She gives uh, him humanity or she gives him a reason to... Or that his previous wife or whatever was, was there because he was famous and she, she saw fell him. for him with Without knowing, okay, that's yeah, fair. Yeah, she, she fell for him, thinking, or she at least connected with him, not knowing he was famous, not knowing yeah, he came from the, the authenticity factor, I suppose. Yeah, you know, there's there is a lot of meta stuff in this movie, man. I don't know, you know, if you have the historical context, but like, was that unique at the time? Was that like a really new thing? Did that set Preston Sturgis apart? Like sort of having a commentary on his career, on the movies he had made, on the movies of the time, and then sort of going back and forth on that in the movie itself? Yeah, I think that's right. And I I think that definitely sets him apart. And I think he is a little more kind of self-referential or at least self-aware than maybe many of his contemporaries were. I mean, movies have been making movies about movie making since the beginning of so i don't think that's well, necessary. hollywood loves nothing more so. exactly but no i think you're right I, I think there's definitely something about preston sturgis being able to self-evaluate a little more than his peers and be able to turn a little bit of an ironic to, to, to use more contemporary terms giving a little bit of side eye toward his uh <laughs> toward his industry or whatever so but you know but ultimately you know the same sort of pleasures went out like seeing a beautiful blonde on screen really pops and crackling dialogue really really works and seeing beautiful people around a beautiful swimming pool is always going to work and so like all the all the signifiers are kind of there it's just that this movie is interested in just exploring something of its own so yeah. in that in that regard it's it's a it's a success i mean you I, I get why it's so culturally sort of historically significant because it kind of stands out from the pack but i don't know how rewatchable it is i mean I always write down best scene and worst scene when we do these AFI retrospectives. And there, and there's one scene in this movie that's really, really, it's really dated. It's really bad. It completely stands out. And honestly, I was just rolling my eyes and kind of like looking at my watch. And it, it happened, luckily it happens early in the movie. It's this crazy, goofy, farcical car chase that happens like 10 yeah. minutes into the movie. And it's just like, it's, it's just terrible. like, what the fuck is going on here? I mean, maybe it that, was hilarious that, at the time, but it does not work now. Yeah, that's that's the worst scene, and I, I think the go-to best scene, which is you know, it's affecting, is the is the watching of the movie, yeah, right? Yeah, for, that's I have that written down. So so that's easy. Yeah, I mean, that's always that's always the scene. Whenever you you know, when when this is mentioned in AFI, CBS television specials, when when we go back to the the great scenes of Preston Sturgis's career, uh, that it's the main clip in the clip show. Exactly, and it's and it actually gets basically ripped off i mean it, it gets um, it, it gets recreated in oh brother where art thou i mean it's a recurring scene in like uh, green mile kind of right sure yeah 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 good point never thought about that does it deserve to be on the list man probably not 
I mean, I've been trying to play devil's advocate here, but it's not one of my favorites. I don't revisit it very often. There's there's other Howard Hawks stuff from the same time period that I tend to respond to a little bit more when it comes to kind of the screwball comedies. I, I know that Preston Sturgis is important. He, he's yet to really justify himself to me yet, but maybe I just need to dig a little bit deeper. I mean, I, I understand why this film is important. I understand why it is um, illustrative screwball comedy and a great example of somebody who has a has a grasp of dialogue, how to deploy it in an interesting and effective way. But no, it's it's I don't think it necessarily deserves it's it's taken up space at the moment for me. And the fact that it was not in the original list is always a little bit of a of a red flag for me as well. Agreed. I would not put it on the list. I don't really get it. Like I understand the cultural significance, I suppose. And if, you know, big time filmmakers always point back to this movie and Sturgis's career, like it's hard to argue with, with that fact, but this movie's too much of a mishmash and there's too many low notes uh, for me to really get behind it. So I say no, not deserving okay. of the list. So we lose it. Just a couple of quick little notes I have here. The NAACP actually commended Sturgis for his treatment of black characters. It comes in at a very brisk 90 minutes. It's got a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes at the moment. It cost $700,000, and it returned $1.1 million at the box office. And in his autobiography, Preston Sturgis noted that he wrote the film as a reaction to the, quote, preaching he found in other comedy films, which seemed to have abandoned the fun in favor of the message. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, I think there's there's definitely some there's some paradoxes going on with this movie for sure. But I yeah. mean, it, it's a movie with a lot in its mind, and it gives us a lot to talk about. And so in that regard, I definitely respect it, and I think it's quite it's quite an interesting uh, cultural artifact. Well, I think that just about does it for AFI Top 100 Countdown Number 61: Sullivan's Travels. Matt, you have anything you want to tell the listeners? Stay tuned for uh, AFI number 60, Duck Soup, next on the list. Check that out at your convenience so you can stay caught up with us. If you haven't figured it out yet, we like movies, but we also like podcasting. We want to continue doing it. If you liked what you've heard, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, or your preferred podcasting platform. Drop us a line, wlmpodcast at gmail.com. If you're currently flush and want to contribute to the cause, not for the purposes of lining our pockets, but merely to help us keep the lights on, visit welikemovies.com and click on the donation link at the top. This site is also where you can find archives, listicles, rankings, articles, video essays, and other assorted WLM ephemera. Spread the word, tell your friends, and help us keep the conversation going. For Oscar Dahl, I'm Matt Knutson, and the degree of difficulty on this episode was... Three out of four hobo bindles. (laughs) 